Sligo O'Toole podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk. My name is Brandon Neal and welcome to the third episode of the Sligo O'Toole In Conversation podcast. This week's guest is David Gavison, who was vice chair and chair of the CBI in Northern Ireland. He is also the founder of Aurora Prime Real Estate Limited, and he was chair of the Mac Theatre in Belfast. So, David, thanks very much for being on the show. Pleasure, Brian. Good to see you. I wanted to get you on because I know when I meet you around, you always seem kind of very calm. And I figure in kind of troubled times like this, it's good to talk to someone who's being a bit more thoughtful and reassured and to get your, your views on things. Now, one thing is before the kind of big slowdown, Belfast seemed to be doing quite well economically. Was that was that your view? Yeah, I think things were going well. Uh, Belfast, as the capital city in Northern Ireland, was making good progress. There's been the most amazing transformation, for instance, in the hotel sector, student accommodation. There were lots of new buildings emerging in Belfast. In my own business, rental levels had gone from five years ago, £15 a square foot, to heading towards £25 a square foot. There was a lot of encouraging signs. Cybersecurity was a stellar performance. Having said all of that, the economy perhaps wasn't growing uh, in comparison to, let's say, Dublin, which was motoring ahead, and different parts of Britain. Uh, there were some issues on the horizon, um, and always it's important to get underneath things and not just look at things at a superficial level. But yeah, overall, I think it was heading in a good place. Obviously, the issue of Brexit was hanging out there, and the detail behind Brexit which we're now beginning to see and beginning to understand, uh, that was a big challenge for everybody in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I think we'll have to see how that works out in the next period of time. Okay. So so COVID and the big slowdown has been a massive shift globally. I mean, when you think of across all sectors, I mean, obviously the, the economy is taking a hit, but also a lot of people see it as a time for kind of pause and renewal and trying new ways of working and they know a lot of people are working from home and how that's going to affect the environment in terms of less road and commuting and, and travel. So, I mean, have you any kind of thoughts on kind of maybe the more positive upsides of the current kind of pause? So the last 10 weeks have been simply extraordinary. Uh, and obviously each person's had their own experience of what the last 10 weeks has meant for them. Uh, I'm very, very focused on the threats and challenges of climate change. Uh, and there was a brilliant quote in a report done recently by Nicholas Stern and Joseph Stiglitz, which has a fantastic line which I put out on Twitter, uh, basically saying that COVID-19 is just a preparation for the climate emergency that we're facing, uh, not we're about to face, we are facing it. Uh, and this is just, in my view, in my phrase, is a dress rehearsal. Um, and really, when you look at uh, the International Energy Agency, again today repeated the uh, levels of carbon reduction that have been achieved through this extraordinary, almost unprecedented uh, moment where the world has stopped for a short period. And it's really difficult to understand how we're going to achieve the levels of carbon reduction that are required to ensure that the world's temperature does not rise by more than two degrees. So I, for me, this has been the most amazing opportunity to actually understand at a simple level. Uh, it's one of the really difficult things like 
building back better is these slogans really understanding how we're going to keep temperature rise at below two degrees and how that transforms into people's daily lives and what we need to do that is a huge issue and if we've only achieved seven or eight percent carbon reduction this year and that may not be sustained if the economies all take off that actually we've got the most massive task because if we don't achieve somewhere between six and eight percent carbon reduction each and every year for the next 10 years we're in dire dire trouble and that to me is perhaps the biggest upside in this tragedy of this pandemic, in terms of understanding what we need to do. And sometimes people see this as uh, trying to stop growth. I'm not trying to stop growth. I'm not advocating the stopping growth. What I'm trying to understand is if we don't stop this, if we don't get carbon under control, we will face cataclysmic moments. Yeah, because I think the, the issue always with climate change is sometimes because it's so long term, it's, it's very easy to, to kick the can down the road, I suppose, isn't it? and for leaders just to concentrate on the, on the day-to-day firefighting there is no more road to kick down the can cannot be stopped unless we deal with this in the next 10 years if you listen to the united nations uh, uh, secretary general if you listen to the oecd director general if you listen to anybody christiana fisgueras one of the world leaders from costa rica who's probably done more in costa rica to really focus on climate adaptation than most people uh, mary robinson the former president of ireland these are really critical years this is a critical month this is a critical year and we've been given a strange blessing in what's happened to actually start to get our minds around what we need to do to reduce carbon yeah well i suppose when you put it in a positive spin is that We've seen that globally we can come together. I mean, every kind of possibly research, medical research scientist on the world seems to be looking at COVID at the moment. So you can see if we turn the kind of scientists and industry to look for solutions to climate change, that it is possible to kind of fix it. So I suppose that that is the the positive message in this, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing, Brian, is all of the science for climate change is known. Uh, one of the people who died earlier this year was a remarkable man called John Horton, H-U-G-H-T-O-N. And he was a world authority and Nobel Peace Prize on climate change. Uh, so he's been at this for 50 years. I mean, most most significant voices, uh, Sir Jonathan Porrett, he's been at this for most of his life. And the question, the challenge we have, and in fact, I, got, I was very lucky, uh, David Putnam, who chaired the House of Lords and House of Commons Committee in 2007, came to Belfast and spoke at an event in Titanic Belfast on the 28th of February. It was one of the last events, public events held. And he was really good on this. The question for us all is, are we prepared to do what needs to be done to face this challenge? And COVID has taught us that you have to face these things head on or terrible things will happen. Now, this isn't a pandemic in that sense, but believe me, the sort of devastation that climate change will bring on us and on the planet if we don't tackle this and keep temperatures below two degrees, then we'll, there'll be a lot more people dying than the 300,000 that have died from COVID. Yeah. See, one of the interesting things about the past few weeks is I've been reading online is a lot of people have kind of felt less desire to consume in terms of buying new stuff and buying more clothes and it's almost like a like a pause on um, the whole kind of capitalist system. Now, I'm like yourself. I, I have business background. I've always worked for myself my whole life. But even I'd be first to admit that we're just buying too much stuff and too much disposable fashion, fast fashion and all this year kind of thing. And I think coming out of this, 
it's almost like we need to look at kind of responsible capitalism and this idea of just consuming more and more things just for the sake of consumption. Yeah. I mean, I think coupled with uh, tackling climate change is actually uh, tackling inequality. And I think your point on consumption is related to that. You know, if some people are able to consume so much and some people are living literally at the most basic levels or actually dying from starvation, we can't go on living in a global world where inequality is not being tackled. And I mentioned Joseph Stiglitz earlier on, but interestingly, the chief executive of Unilever did a webinar uh, a few weeks ago. And he, a uh, very interesting Scots guy who took over from Paul Polman, Alan Jope, and he said the two issues that really concern him are climate change, climate adaptation, and inequality. And I really feel that capitalism has not faced up to the obligations we face to every and each human being. And COVID, again, has been quite good in actually bringing a consciousness to us all that without all the remarkable people that have supported the extraordinary endeavors, whether it's in supermarkets uh, or hospitals or you know, so many aspects of our life where previously the phrase unskilled labor was used and all of a sudden now there's a new respect that each of us have to have that the world is actually highly dependent on all sorts of people to make it work. And it's time we made sure that every person in our society was given a fair opportunity. And on that topic of um, income inequality, because you, you've probably been following some of the developments in America where there, there seems to be this kind of absolutely ginormous wealth transfer to the rich, e even more so um, under Trump and a lot of the kind of um, stabilization of the stock market is fascinating where we've had the biggest economic collapse possibly ever and, and the stock market is still kind of is, is, is maintained its kind of kind of levels so this kind of massive inequality and subsidy it just encourages division essentially yeah uh, absolutely Brent. um I mean, interestingly, one of the books that I've read in the last couple of weeks is an amazing book by Michael Lewis called The Fifth Risk. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's a really interesting insight into both the extraordinary uh, prevalence of amazing people in the public uh, realm in America um, and the strength of that, uh, that has had a huge positive impact in American society, but then the impact of the Trump regime and what's happened to that and the way that's been distorted. But I think, as you quite rightly say, uh, one of the challenges in America now is the huge levels of unemployment uh, and this mismatch, the gap between that and what seems to be happening on Wall Street. And you probably saw The Economist did a very good feature last week on this extraordinary gap between uh, Wall Street and, and the rest of society. And I think, again, that needs a lot more focus. And, you know, obviously it depends uh, who might get re-elected as president in November. But I, I think that's an issue uh, that faces America and Britain and indeed all societies, whether they're communist or capitalist, uh, it's a massive challenge. Yeah, because I know uh, what kind of annoys me, because I've always been in business, and I actually I like business because I think it's quite a good occupation if you're kind of like a bit of an outsider, bit of a rebel. And uh, people always associate kind of, when you say business, people think, you know, the white guy with the, you know, suit and the tie. But but there's, there's lots of kind of businesses. There's creative businesses, young entrepreneurs. There's, there's all sorts and I would like to kind of, I think we need to do more to encourage people to say, look, 
you can start a business. You don't need to be, you know, such a type of person. There's all types of things that, that you can do. And I'm sure you'd be quite a, an advocate of people. Completely. I mean, I'm a great supporter of the Community Foundation. Uh, and the chair of that is a remarkable lady, Maeve Monaghan, who runs the NOW Group. Uh, what, what Maeve has done and her team is incredible in the NOW Group. There's a fantastic example of a world-class social enterprise. So there are many, many models of business. And as you so rightly said earlier on, consumption is not everything. And indeed, I think there is a lesson through what we've gone through is that you know, having one's life uh, surviving through COVID if you've ha had the disease, and then uh, your family, uh, your neighborhood, those are really powerful messages. And I think there is a lot to be said for reflecting much more carefully on the nature of our society. And because you have a background in, uh, in banking and in investment, um, what I've been surprised at is uh, there may not be a magic money tree, but there appears to be a, a magic money forest for when they need to conjure up billions to kind of bail out certain sectors and the, the economy. Now, I know that obviously they did probably did need to do a lot of these bailouts and the wage schemes and the furloughs and all that there. But it does kind of show that a lot of things like austerity and how we kind of fund um, education, skills, investment in, in poor people, our, our political choices are not necessarily economic choices. So um, the, only, the only issue which I'd have is obviously uh, some really significant measures were taken in the last three months to address this extraordinary pandemic. But, but the challenge which we all face, and uh, Britain and Ireland faced it as a result of the crash, was um, when you borrow money, you have to repay it. Uh, the issue is, uh, this isn't a free lunch. Um, so there is going to be enormous changes that come from this level of debt. Uh, obviously, we're living in an unprecedented time, and maybe the roots of this go back to 9-11, when massive amounts of quantitative easing were granted to uh, Western societies to to deal with the implications of 9-11. Uh, in, in my lifetime, I never dreamt that we'd be facing into something called negative interest rates. Um, Mark Carney, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, wrote a very good article, I think it was in the FT, just pointing out how absurd the concept of negative interest rates were. But that seems to be where increasingly we're going. Um, I'm a straightforward, old-fashioned banker, and the premise on which uh, you lent money was, as you looked further out, you needed a premium on your return for leaving your money on deposit, because there was more risk. Now, the idea that you put money on deposit, and then at some stage in the future, you get back less, is so counterintuitive. It's like the laws of gravity being turned on their head. So I'm struggling terribly with that. But what that does mean is that if governments have borrowed huge sums of money, then all of that needs to get repaid. And what we face, and this is the really big challenge with the post-COVID world, is none of us will know what the tax revenues into government look like, yet we will know what the levels of debt are, and they will be significant. Yeah, but there does seem to me, because I, I don't know if you've been listening to the, the David McWilliams podcast um, yeah. the past few weeks, and he's talking about like modern monetary theory and as you say quantitative easing which in simple terms yeah. is kind of printing money and that it seems to you to kind of you, you can to a certain degree kind of magic up money now 
I, I studied economics at the Salud Institute we are yeah. now. And, and to me, it does kind of melt my head how a lot of his stuff works, but it, it does seem to be that we've got some very strange economic rules these days. Yeah. I don't want to be facetious, and obviously David Williams is a rock star when it comes to what he does, but uh, I think I heard him say that Pascal Donahoe didn't know what he was doing or talking about. I find that rather strange. I mean, uh, David Williams is a black rock boy like me, and, you know, to be saying that the Minister of Finance in the South, who's a highly intelligent individual who reads a book a day sometimes, doesn't know what he's at, doesn't seem to me necessarily correct. So I think David, I mean, the great thing about David is he catches people's attention. But I'm a straightforward old banker. And when you borrow money, even if you're a state, depends what level. And the fact is, at the current moment, it, there appears to be the... And I go back to the fact that nobody knows what the revenues into government will look like. If business after business goes under, and remember there's huge tax losses that lots of business will have, and there's levels of unemployment, then actually you could find the whole premise on which this debt has been borrowed is actually out of kilter with the ability to repay, particularly if there's a run in the case of sterling. Obviously, the Irish government's within the euro, and you know maybe there's different arrangements, but there are fault lines within the euro as well. But if sterling is there is a run on sterling, interest rates will go up, and that becomes this vicious circle. So, so on 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 the, the, getting getting into crystal ball time. So how do you see the future for the UK? Because I mean, assuming Brexit will go ahead, if if as a lot of people like myself have voted against Brexit, but can see it's going to be completely disastrous, especially now when we need unity more than ever. But assuming Brexit goes ahead, I mean, how do you see the future of the UK? Economically, so, uh, Brexit will go ahead. Uh, I'm hoping that there will be some common sense and some form of additional extension will be done because I don't think the timing is right and I don't think a good deal will get done in the time that we have, which is to the end of June. So I'm praying that some sense will take will prevail. Uh, and obviously, we've now got just over a month to, to come to that view, but we'll know that soon enough. Um, and the game of chicken will be played out or not played out. So we'll see that. In terms of your more general question on what position is Britain in, in a post-Brexit world uh, outside the European Union, I think it's quite difficult. And for me, Brian, it's actually about jobs. Uh, you know, Britain has had the most amazing success, for instance, in the automotive industry and the civil aviation industry. Now, if the big automotive manufacturers believe that their market is imperiled by being in Britain, and they start to move significant numbers of jobs and all the related jobs down the line in the supply chain, they are to move out of Britain because they no longer have the right environment in which to trade. And the same happens in other industries. Then I worry significantly for Britain because that's a massive re-engineering project on top of this extraordinary cataclysm that came out of nowhere. So I would be, I'd be anxious and, and, you know, it's probably fair to say that the last couple of months haven't reflected a competency in British administration. So, you know, you have to ask the question, the numbers of deaths in Britain compared to other parts of Europe needs to be reflected upon. There needs to be more honesty about that. There needs to be, I mean, for me, the really fundamental issue, and I saw a woman today who's actually gone for a testing, is we should have all been tested by now. So simple things like tracking and tracing. You know, unless these things are obvious and out on the street, then we're back to the, 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 the macro. 
there's the micro and the macro. I mean, I, as we walked over here, we talked about the bins not being emptied. You know, if bins aren't being emptied in parks, that's simply not a good reflection on basic day-to-day -day administration. So I think there's a big challenge for Britain to show uh, that they can deal with these issues. Uh, you know, there's this suggestion of 50,000 customs officers. Well, uh, my understanding is there's nowhere near that number. And so it goes on and so it goes on. And there's no point beating our chests and saying things are going to be great when actually for a human being who's living in a difficult place, things aren't great. You know, it's time that there's more humility and more honesty about how we're going to move to the next place. And of course, we need to work with our European partners. Of course we do. Yeah. Um, with the rise of English nationalism, uh, do you think you can ever see a situation where English taxpayers will turn around and say, look, we're fed up giving Northern Ireland 10 billion a year. We're fed up giving Scotland whatever it is per year. And frankly, you can both sling your hook and that there will be, <laughs> will be some kind of a, in a position where you're, you're looking at the breakup of the UK but coming from like an, an English nationalist slant as opposed to, you know, what we've seen before with Scottish uh, independence and stuff like that? So, I mean, obviously, uh, I, I'm not an expert on English nationalism and, and wouldn't want to be. And nationalism of any sort uh, has many difficult characteristics. But what I can say and can see, uh, back to the equality uh, situation, is... Um, Paul Johnson from the Institute of Fiscal Studies wrote a very interesting piece um, probably two months ago, which the Times had. It's on his website. And he referred to the fact that government will take tough decisions. If you're in the northeast of England, and I don't know how many people are in the sort of Newcastle area or the Durham area to choose a place, um, and let's say there's two million people, and they're getting on average £4,000 per head from Westminster. And there's another group of people in this United Kingdom over here who are getting £12,000 a head. So it's not, to me, not for me about the 10 billion. It's the individual at the human level. If 2 million people get 4,000 and another 2 million people get 12, then you have to ask the question, where's the fairness in that when actually they're suffering the same levels of deprivation and inequality and job losses as we suffer. And that's where I think there's a vulnerability. I've always thought there was a vulnerability, but I think in a post-COVID world, that will become diffi more difficult and more difficult to square. And I actually think in conscience on our side, we need to think about that as well. And, you know, obviously, if you look at pre-COVID, the economics of the Republic of Ireland compared to the economics of Northern Ireland. So uh, one of the really interesting figures that when I was chair of the CBI, I worked very closely with Andrew Legown on an excellent piece of work with IBEC, where we analyzed the average income per head for people in Northern Ireland compared to the Republic. And the average in Northern Ireland was 27,000 euro, give or take, and the average in the Republic of Ireland was two and a bit times greater. And that's before a, a lovely simple law called the Law of 72. So the Law of 72 is a very elegant formula that works, which basically says, if your investment grows, at 1% per annum, or your economy, you double in size in 72 years. If your investment grows at 2% per annum, it doubles in size in 36 years. If you grow at 3% per annum, it doubles in size in 24 years. And if you grow at 4% per annum, it doubles in size in 18 years. So the Republic of Ireland was growing somewhere between 3 and 5. This is on a, a piece of land that's the same piece of land as we live on, on this island. Uh, Dublin is obviously moving more strongly than anywhere else in the Republic of Ireland. 
but 100 miles down the road, they're growing at somewhere between 4 and 6, and we're just getting to under 1%, and in fact, we weren't even achieving 1%. So already we had this extraordinary disparity that had grown up over 20 years between the 57 and the 27, uh, give or take 57, and this law of 72. So that for me, the real big challenge was pre-COVID is we need to transform our economy and really understand the, the, the structural elements of how the Republic of Ireland works as one of the most open economies in the world and look at how we in Northern Ireland can work with the Republic of Ireland, building bridges, not to Scotland, but actually a, a faster train service to Dublin and doing lots and lots of things where we're working together hand in glove on the all Ireland economy, which I believe is a fundamental part of our future. So you, you grew up in Dublin. You, you've lived a long time up in Belfast. So you've kind of got a, a foot in both camps. How do we approach the issue of Irish unity or cooperation, but take out the, the kind of the emotion, the hate, you know, the kind of arguments of our nationality and flags and all that. Is, is, it, is it possible for a start to do that? Or, or can we look at some form of practical cooperation on an all-island basis? So obviously, uh, the practical cooperation is a fundamental. Uh, every human being who lives on this island, and there's now just under 7 million people living on this island, we all need to recognize and respect each other and recognize there are long, difficult issues that still in many cases aren't healed. But nevertheless, there's marvelous progress that's taking place. I believe this island has all the potential to grow to a population of 10 million people, which in itself will create a massive positive dynamic. So the Republic of Ireland's population has grown significantly since I left there as a university student, having lived the life of normal people in Trinity. Uh, that's a joke, by the way. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, so anyway, um, uh, in 1980, Ireland was still one of the poorest regions in Europe. Today, it is arguably one of the wealthiest regions in Europe. And what we have to do is recognize how we work together and cooperate together to build a better place for all of us. Um, you know, at a cultural level, I've been really fascinated, and I've joined Linda Irvine's email group on the appreciation from her perspective and her culture and how she's embraced the sense of Irishness that she believes belongs in her community. And there's a really good example of a transformation where in no, in no way is she losing any sense of her unionism. What she's recognizing is we live here. We all enjoy here. The sun shines here as it shines in Dublin. And the fact is we have so much more in common than differences. And what we have to achieve is how to ensure that people's sense of Britishness isn't lost in a new Ireland and people's sense of Irishness is not overwhelming in a new Ireland, but that we work together. And, and, and the, the, the other point which I'd make in a Dublin that I grew up in was, Dublin was very, in the 1980s, we were still a very homogenous society. About 20% of Irish people now are born outside Ireland. It's very interesting, uh, walking in the last few weeks and months uh, in and around South Belfast, you do see an amazing transformation. Uh, when you wait outside Tesco's on University Road, you do see a much broader nationality base here. And that's fantastic because that means we're mixing the cultures and making a new possibility, which across the island of Ireland which is something I fundamentally believe in. See, one of the challenges we, we face on Slugger is 
my politics are kind of like extreme pragmatism because I, I really couldn't care less if, if we're ruled by a UK, Ireland, Germany or whoever. I just want somebody to and empty the bins and kind of cut the grass and do all the practical things. But from my point of view, the direction of travel seems to be Irish unity just because of the rise of English nationalism, kind of disengaging with Northern Ireland and just the sheer fact that the economy in the, in the South is booming. And we'll be, we'll be complete fools that kind of turned our back on such such an obvious kind of hookup. But how do we have these conversations without kind of poking, seem to be poking unionism in the eye or, you know, being triumphalist or you know, any of this kind of stuff? I think, I think it requires uh, really pragmatic discussions. Uh, and as I said earlier on, uh, one of the deep-seated issues uh, for all of us is if you're able to respect each human being and you find ways of tackling the deep-seated inequality, I think that will enrich all of our societies, both North and South, and that will create its own self-fulfilling sense of, you know, this feels good, and I want to be part of that. And that's what I think increasingly young people want. Young people don't have the labels that perhaps those of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s in Ireland, and obviously, Brian, you're younger, but never, we all have badges that we've, we've, we've got and we, we inherit. I think we have to, young people are looking at things differently. You know, it's really interesting to see, I, I joked about normal people, but the, the viewing figures in Britain of normal people is incredible. 37 million people have been watching normal people. That's fantastic. That immediately starts, you know, sort of making people realize that we're all together. And yet, indeed, as I said earlier on, I didn't want to address English nationalism, but you know, the tragedy of these two islands, we have so much in common. You know, I was lucky enough to be at the marvelous event in the Albert Hall with the President of Ireland and the Queen. Uh, and it was one of the most moving occasions. And this shared history we have where we can respect each other's history and to build on that, that's where we were going. The Queen's visit to Ireland, the President's visit to, to, to Britain. These were really powerful moments, and that's where we need to get back to. And given you, you, your experience of, of, of Belfast, do you think sometimes we're kind of a, in, indulged too much and we're kind of always kind of looking somebody to come in and solve our problems? We're looking investment in hands out here. I mean, do you think we kind of need to kind of give it, be given a reality check and say, look, it's time to stand up on your own two feet and kind of get on with things? So uh, I, I'm not so sure about be given a reality check. I think it's up to us, each and every one of us, to accept. We're, it's a, it is up to us. Uh, I always believe fundamentally in having the executive back. Uh, I, I've, I've never liked direct rule. When I first came here in 2004, I worked for the Secretary of State, uh, and I thought it was a marvellous, marvellous moment when uh, Dr. Paisley and Martin McGuinness uh, evicted um, uh, Peter Haynes from Stormont Castle. So I'm a great believer in devolved government, and of course it's going to be difficult. And of course, the issues and challenges that the two first ministers have experienced over the last few months has been extraordinary. But you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen some really positive signs. I think the Minister of Health's done a great job. I think actually uh, Nicola Mallon, the Minister of Infrastructure, has done a fantastic job. I think you, you really are beginning to see the voices of each minister coming through. Uh, it's fundamental for the civil service. They have local ministers who understand local issues. So the question for us all is, how do we collaborate and get around each other. And uh, to use the phrase from Portra Kutuma, is you know, under the shelter, we need to create a shelter for each of us and work together and recognize there is so much that we can do together. And we know what it feels like if we don't work together. 
it ain't good. So why don't we start to work together and find a way? And COVID's been a really good challenge in terms of doing that. And as back to my climate change issues, yeah, that is the biggest issue. And climate change cannot be tackled on this island, on these two islands in Europe, in anything other than in a collaborative global national way. But we have to get on with this here in Ireland. One of the big challenges is in the agricultural sphere where we have very high levels of emissions, methane and so on. So again, we have to work and collaborate with our partners across the island of Ireland to tackle that. And if, if, if by some quirk of fate you were appointed a benign dictator of Northern Ireland tomorrow, I mean, what, what, what would you choose to do if, if you were in kind of first minister in charge of this place? I mean, what, what kind of would you put your focus on? Uh, well, I would be. I would not accept the job first because <laughs> I believe in the democratic process. But I am preparing all the work that needs to be done to reduce carbon. I, I fundamentally believe that those countries, and you know, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand has really demonstrated that those countries that embrace change and are prepared for the most significant challenges we face the countries that will succeed best and feel best about each other and will look after each other. So if, if our executive can really commit to the measures that need to be taken with a potentially massive investment program behind it, then the world will come here and we will grow the population of this island to 10 million people and we will see extraordinary success and we will be a beacon of hope, which is what I've always thought this island could be, is we, we are blessed, Brian, to have an amazing uh, temperate climate yeah. you know, if you were living in parts of the world now at 50 degrees it would be just unbearable so we have a real opportunity to create something fantastic but the executive need to get on with that because it's no, there's no more time to delay it in, in terms of putting on your, on your kind of banker's hat um in terms of fundraising because there's going to be issues obviously after this you know with with just the public finances um, she would be looking at things like like we've been kicking a can on water for forever so should we at the very least mutualize the water service like like they've done in wales it's still under public ownership but it would allow them to kind of raise funds i mean is there solutions like that we need to be looking at to kind of borrow more money uh so i came here originally in 2004 on the back of working with douglas mcledoon on the mutualization of the gas uh, moil interconnector um mutualization is a model that definitely has merits for uh infrastructure like water and energy. Um, however, uh, you might have seen that there was quite a lot of discussion and you know, both north and south, there's this big issue uh, as to whether water should be in the private sector or, or as it is in the public sector. The reality is though that, uh, I don't quite know what the figure is in the north, but in the south, 50% of water is still being lost through leakages. Nice. So, you know, in a certain sense, we, we love creating conversations which are up there, stratospheric conversations. The leakages issue seems to me a really immediate issue. Uh, you know, probably you do, maybe you're better than me, but with my little boy, uh, he still unfortunately follows our lead and he turns the tap on when he's cleaning his teeth. There are so many areas where we can save water. So these are the simple things. This, in a certain sense, brings us back to the sort of real, the reality of, we can create a better society by being so much more respectful of our environment. The water is a good example. I would certainly be keen to look at ways. Uh, so on the sewerage, uh, I mean, interestingly, I did send a note to the, uh, to the minister and to the permanent secretary. In New York, 
they've now, this was pre-COVID, they've been husbanding the affluence from houses because they knew they couldn't find the money to invest. So, you know, again, there are lots of ways of tackling this. So, you know, we automatically just pull the plug and think it's gone. But, you know, there's lots of ways we need to think about this. So, you know, I, I think sometimes we are constantly uh, caught up in this trap that somebody else's problem, not my problem. But I, I think we need to look much more at the, the daily practice of what we do and then think about how that can be applied and, and, and own the problem. You know, COVID has made us own a problem. And I think we need that with water, with energy, with carbon, with nitrogen dioxide. I mean, a, a tiny example is, uh, and this is a mundane issue, is I don't know if you walk to school or take your kid to school, but um, I take my little boy to school around the corner. I used to take them up to um, the integrated school, Forge Integrated School at the top of the Ormer Road. And I said to the headmaster there, you know, uh, nitrogen dioxide is probably one of the most poisoned substances for children's brains. And yet, Nobody wants to look at it. It's something we choose to ignore. We just don't want to notice. So we are actually every day poisoning children's brain. In Northern Ireland, and I'll exaggerate, less than 2% of people take their children to school by bike or walking. Whereas in Europe, it's 40, 50, oh, yeah. certain places, 60%. Oh, I know all about it. Because uh, with my son's primary school, I actually um, got the head teacher to give me the postcodes of all the the parents now, now only to post schools for privacy reasons and we, we plotted them on a google map yeah so you could see where everybody lived yeah and everyone was in like a mile of the school yeah and yet over 50 percent of people still drive their kids yeah. to this school and yeah. it, it just kind of blew my mind because yeah. you can literally spend 10 minutes in traffic trying to get into the car park yeah. you, you could walk it in half the time yeah it, and, and you know it's what's so perverse is the nitrogen dioxide gets more and more concentrated as you get closer to school <laughs> Yeah. So you know, it's like you know, if you are idling actually, cars in the car park. No, precisely. Another one. No, yeah, that's crazy. So it, mm. Actually, if you could show that the nitrogen, you know how they show the COVID now with yeah. the ultraviolet light. If you could actually show the nitrogen dioxide that's going into mm. kids' brains and what that does to our kids. So there's an example. But there are many, many things we can do. I mean, uh, at a personal level, I would love to see the minister in all residential areas of Belfast, for example. And this, I think, would send a message to the world and locally: is first of all, impose a twenty mile an hour uh, speed limit, speed limit with really serious fines. Take out all the humps and then close roads on weekends. I mean, we've had the most joyous time in the last two months playing basketball and tennis on the street. And, you know, Rugby Road where I live is a lovely street. And, you know, there are lots of young kids. Imagine being able to be relaxed as a parent if the kids were able to, they could close the road. So there's a, there's a really simple example of enhancing our environment and doing two things. And then all of a sudden, you, in France, you probably know this, that public servants are being rewarded for cycling to the office. So again, you know, another one in the Republic of Ireland, as they've now said, all public servants, at least one day in a week, will work from home. So these are the sort of measures that I think are, these aren't huge measures. These are sort of simple, plain, straightforward measures, which could be done straight away. Yeah, because we're essentially looking the kind of easy wins to improve the quality of life. Precisely. Uh, and send a message. Yeah. And send far. a message. We're serious about tackling carbon. Okay. Now, on uh, this second last question is going to be, after COVID, um, there's a view, you know, countries are starting to wake or companies starting to wake up and countries to this issue of, it's a very bad idea, kind of putting all your supply lines in China very out of your control. And there's talk of, you know, a lot of manufacturing kind of moving back home or to be, 
in better control. So you're in this position again where you're kind of begging for PPE gear and all this. So, uh, so I know David McWilliams uh, takes a view that uh, post-COVID Ireland should do quite well economically because we're kind of seen as very neutral and, and a safe country. Um, we've got connections with America. We're, we're part of Europe. And it should come out of all this here quite well economically. Would that be your view on it as well? Um, yeah, I think, as I said earlier on, one of the beauties about the Irish economy is it's such an open economy. Um, I think probably we all need to understand the rise uh, and the inevitable rise and the proper rise. And when I say rise, it's in fact a return to what the world was like 200 years ago. Uh, India and China were the dominant economies of the world 200 years ago. So what we're seeing is a return to that. Um, and, you know, it's fantastic at one level because the level of poverty that existed in India and still exists in India and China was significant. So these are fantastic things from when Deng Xiaoping. The, the, the one issue which I think one road, one belt, I was born in Africa uh, and The Economist did quite a good article on the FT uh, on, for instance, the Chinese influence on Italy. The Chinese influence in Africa is extraordinary. Yeah. So uh, having grown up and having this colonial accent, uh, I'm well aware of how colonialism works. And China is a very significant colonial power through another guise uh, in, in Africa and parts of Europe. And I think that's something which we need to understand much more closely. Having said all of that, uh, the previous Chinese consul in Belfast, I liked very much. And, you know, here's an interesting thing that the number of Chinese students that go to America and Europe uh, is 10 times the number of European and American students that go to China. Mm -hmm. So there's an asymmetrical understanding of what they, th they know about us and what we know about them. And of course, that creates huge dis issues, long-term issues. And, you know, obviously how COVID was dealt with uh, has had direct implications for all of us. So I, I think there needs to be a much deeper understanding, a much deeper cultural exchange. And, you know, obviously things like the Hong Kong situation need to be thought through carefully. Okay. And as we finish up, um, we'd just like to finish by asking, is there any kind of two or three books, podcasts, articles that you think our listeners should read? So... Um, I really, really enjoyed Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk. It's a great read. Uh, I whipped through it in a week. Uh, another book that I've been reading and I finished is The Un Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Williams, which is a really cracking read and brings home the full. Uh, and then I'm just about to embark on a new book, which uh, looks really uh, lovely, uh, which is now a different sort of book. It's called The Architect's Apprentice by Elif Shalak. Uh, so that's what I'm about to read. And I also bought John Horton's book on climate change. Okay. So we're going to finish that. So uh, David Gavahan, thanks very much for your time. If you have enjoyed this episode of Slugger Podcast, please subscribe to get more. Thank you. The Slugger O'Toole Podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk.